they say. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Today's guest is as brilliant as she is beautiful. She is double board certified physician, and today she's going to be talking about a very important subject, your gut health and your immune system. She actually was one of the speakers on the GI Health Summit and did a fabulous job. And whenever somebody writes us and says, who do I see for GI problems? I say, see Dr. Mendez, because especially with COVID, she can actually do telemedicine in most places. So if you are struggling anywhere from here to down there, consider checking her out. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Mendez. It's so good to see you. Thank you so much, AJ, for having me back here. I've loved collaborating with you on already, this is going to be our third uh, show. um, And the Gut Health Summit was just a spectacular experience. It really was the launch of me doing a series of talks. And now in the past year, I've done over 20 different talks and all thanks to you and the confidence you had in me and hoping to share all this information and education with our, with our audience. Well, you know, I'm, I, I, I know a star when I see one. All I did was offer you a platform because you have all the information. And I, I love how generous you are. I, if you don't follow Dr. Mendez on Instagram, I'll put the link because she definitely does her posts in English, but in Spanish. That's so inclusive. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Cuban-American. I was born in Cuba. And, um, you know, the Hispanic community, the Latinx community is near and dear to my heart. So I I think that all this information, you know, the more languages we can translate it into, um, the better uh, to be able to get people healthy, improve their gut health, their immune system now more than ever. We are so hyper-focused on the immune system. And today we're going to talk about how gut health um, and immune system is related and how in optimizing your gut health, we're going to optimize your immune system and allow your body to do what it needs to do. Yeah, I, I didn't realize until, you know, interviewing, like, I think it was like 40 doctors for the GI Health Summit that that's, that's really where our immune system lives. Yeah, absolutely. So 70 to 80% of our immune system lives in our digestive system. So even when we're, um, you know, as soon as we're born, even before we're born, we, we think that there's already a colonization of these microbes in your gut and the immune system starts to be primed right away. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And it's so important because I, I heard you on a podcast, you were saying that it's, it's one thing that doctors in general don't get any nutritional training, but that at least GI doctors should, because to think that what you eat doesn't affect your gut is it's kind of ridiculous. Absolutely. I agree. And, um, um, gastroenterologists, you know, this is our specialty, everything to do with the gut, with all the digestive organs. And we don't get any more nutrition training than regular doctors, possibly a couple hours more, but, um, nothing substantial and nothing more than can the, you know, we can Google ourselves. So it, it does create a huge issue for our specialty when we really don't know, you know, regular gastroenterologists really don't know much about nutrition. Patients ask them and oftentimes their answer answer will be, you know, it doesn't really matter what you eat. Um, And that's simply not true. In fact, when we (laughs) counsel people that they should eat healthier, right? Well, one, what does that mean? And second, how, how is that nutrition affecting our body? Yes, certainly it's contributing to nutrients in our body, but it goes way deeper than that. And the key is in the gut microbiome. Great. Well, anytime you're ready, you can share your slides. Perfect. So 
Hopefully it works here. Guys are in okay. for a real treat. <laughs> All right. So you can see it, AJ. Perfect. Okay, great. So today uh, we're going to talk about the gut health, about gut health and the immune system. And then um, some of the objectives are to define the digestive system and some of its functions, then um, including endocrine and immune functions, and then to really dig a little bit deeper into the gut microbiome and um, specifically its role in immunity. And then we're gonna talk about the role of diet in inflammatory and autoimmune conditions and what's the best um, diet and really lifestyle for digestive and immune health. So when it comes to the digestive system, um, it's not only what we previously thought, we thought it was a hollow tube that really took in nutrients and expelled waste, right? It's so much more than that. It really is such a complex system that is com um, intimately involved with other systems in the body through the production of its own chemicals, enzymes, hormones. The digestive system is actually the largest endocrine organ in the body, if you can believe that. And it produces more than, um, it has more than 30 hormonal genes. And we cannot deny the relationship between the gut and the brain. Um, the intestine actually produces more than 30 neurotransmitters that can communicate with the rest of the body with our own um, uh, enteric nervous system, which is our second brain. So the gut actually has its own nervous system called the enteric nervous system, the second brain. So it has 30 neurotransmitters that communicate there, but it also communicates with the brain through the vagus nerve through um, short chain fatty acids, which are created by the microbiota, which we'll talk a little bit deeper um, in a bit. And then, as we said, about 70 to 80% of the immune system is actually in our gut and in something called the gut-associated lymphoid tissue or GALT, and it is part of our innate immune system, which is our first line of defense. So our body, uh, especially our intestine, is its own ecosystem. Our gut is home to around 100 trillion microorganisms, which include viruses, bacteria, fungi, archaea, and microbial eukaryotes. And there are about 150 to 200 times more microbial genes than cellular um, human genes. So, and, and uh, different, different um, studies say different things, but we're definitely anywhere between only 1% to 10% human and we're actually about 90 to 99% microbial um, in terms of genetic material, okay? So the, the microbiota actually has a lot more genetic material than we do. So um, they can uh, do a lot more than we ourselves do. And that is a key to why we may have trouble digesting certain carbohydrates. If a microbiota is out of whack, out of balance, then the key is the microbiota is out of balance and um, we need to strengthen the microbiome to help us digest those plant-based foods. So we'll talk about that later. Um, and then although there's a microbial similarity between humans, like you and your mom, when you're little, you have the closest two microbiomes that two people can share, especially when you're still lactating, um, when you're still breastfeeding, um, that it starts to diverge really quickly as, as the baby starts to eat regular foods. Um, and we know that the microbiome um, is our own individual fingerprint. So no two microbiomes are alike at all. And in terms of coevolution, I mean, we have studies showing that, you know, petrified like uh, feces from uh, like millions of years ago 
contain this microbiota. So we know that the microbiota has lived in symbiosis with us since the beginning of time. In fact, they were there before us, right? And then um, we are as dependent on them as they are on us. We give them food. So what we eat, they also eat and we give them a home. And in turn, they help regulate so many different body processes, so many processes throughout our body. And the immune system is no exception. It's the perfect example of this co-evolution between the microbiota and our human bodies. Our immune system has evolved alongside the microbiota, creating a relationship in which they coexist and help each other to maintain homeostasis or balance within our bodies. Um, but they can also have a negative relationship, right? Depending on um, what we're feeding our bodies, et cetera. So the gut microbiome, um, we, so originally we thought it, babies were born sterile, meaning they didn't have any microbiome, no microbiota colonizing their colon or their digestive system. But some studies have actually shown that there may be um, some translocation of bacteria even when the baby's in the womb. Um, so that is still an ongoing area of research, but we do know that babies get their first large big dose at birth as they pass through the birth canal, or if they're born through C-section when they need the mother's skin and the, you know, the environmental air. And then the microbiome continues to develop through breastfeeding or formula feeding. Um, and um, we know that compared to formula, breast milk really is magic. Uh, it contains live culture, so it, it contains its own probiotics. And it contains prebiotics as well, which are the complex carbohydrates to feed that initial microbiome that the baby is uh, colonizing in its body. Um, when we compare vaginal delivery versus C-section, we know that if a baby is born vaginally, they are, you know, they're born with a greater diversity of microorganisms. It makes sense because there's that close contact between the vagina and the rectum, right? Um, and then when they're born with C-section, they have different microorganisms, more resembling that of the skin, uh, of the human skin. And then um, as kids transition to solid food, their microbiome um, increases even more. So throughout life, we do experience uh, an increase in the microbiome and, you know, in adulthood is that we will have our, the most diversity possible. Um, and then it starts to decrease again as we age. Um, there's many things we can do to optimize that, of course. Um, but what we do know is at a very young age, two to three years old, the gum microbiome is mostly matured by that time. So it'll, it'll stay um, usually very stable. Um, after that, um, it'll increase in diversity, but it'll stay mostly stable. And um, what all of this tells you is that these first, you know, three years of life, really that first one to two years of life are essential. They are so instrumental in building a uh, robust microbiome. Um, we know that antibiotics and around um, birth and, you know, in the first year of life um, really do decrease this diversity in the gut microbiome significantly and, micro, um, and antibiotics in the first couple of years of life uh, do affect the microbiome a lot. And that has a lot of consequences for the immune system. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about how to optimize that because the reality is sometimes we need to use antibiotics, right? If we have a life-threatening infection, we need to use antibiotics. Um, so um, it's just about being wise, when to use antibiotics, uh, and, and, and knowing how to uh, optimize your microbiome around that antibiotic use.
So um, again, going back to that early, early life, we have um, some influencers, some are positive influencers on the gut microbiota, some are negative influencers. So some positive influencers associated with increased microbial diversity and microbial diversity means we have more of all the bugs, but that tends to mean more of the good bugs. We want a, a sturdier, more robust microbiome, meaning more diversity, because then we'll be covered in all the essential functions that the microbiota do within our body. So the more diversity equals better gut health. Um, so some good positive influencers include um, good maternal health during pregnancy, you know, healthy weight, uh, healthy nutrition, healthy lifestyle being born vaginally, vaginally, as we mentioned, breastfeeding, um, you know, this may not always be possible, but um, we need to be supporting moms and, and families a lot more with breastfeeding to optimize this initial um, rush of probiotics and prebiotics to the baby. And then siblings and having pets are actually associated with increased microbial diversity throughout life. So uh, I know AJ has a beautiful dog. Um, I have two dogs and, uh, you know, uh, pets are a wonderful addition to, uh, to our families and to the microbiome as well. And then some negative influencers are the opposite of all those things, right? It's poor maternal health during pregnancy, uh, poor nutrition, poor lifestyle, um, being born by C-section. Again, this is not always uh, and something that we can modify. So a lot of us, you know, ha were born by C-section or have had to have C-section, uh, cesarean birth. Um, and perinatal antibiotics, as, as we mentioned, that means antibiotics around birth, right? Before we're born and right after we're born. Um, and uh, formula feeding, again, a decreased microbial diversity associated with this. And any kind of early life trauma has been associated with decreased microbial diversity. So all these are really, really important uh, things that, so when patients come to me and you know, they tell me, doc, look, I've had gut issues my entire life. Nobody has ever been able to explain these things to me. I go back to their birth. Like I ask them about how they were born, you know, what's their, what are, what are their relationships like? What, what is not only their nutrition, what is their lifestyle like? Like I take in all of that information to really help guide them. Cause I think when people understand where their health issues may have um, stemmed from when, when they may have been initiated, it really gives them kind of this this understanding, this peace, and then you guide them through optimization of their gut microbiome and their health. And it really does create a better relationship with their own bodies, their health, and they, they have a lot more hope and understanding of their own disease process. So when it comes to the function of the microbiome, this is a growing field and the evidence, if you were to ask us, you know, maybe like 10 years ago about all of this, maybe this was half the list. So every Every week we have several studies coming out on the gut microbiome. So it's a very fastly moving field. And um, some of us that are very interested in it have to keep up with it because otherwise we'll be left behind. Um, but some of the, the uh, essential functions that we know occur are, for example, our microbiome, um, which is all these microbes that live inside our gut, and they help defend us against pathogenic microorganisms. They help regulate our immune system. They degrade toxic compounds. They digest food that we cannot, keyword there, because that is the key to a lot of food intolerances, especially, you know, we've seen a lot of plant-based people then 
all of a sudden start introducing um, animal products and it's because this is the key. They are not tolerating um, plant-based foods and it's because they have a microbial imbalance. So the key is not to avoid these foods. The key is to work with somebody that can help you, you know, heal your microbiome and that imbalance and get you tolerating these foods again. And then the microbiome also helps us facilitate the absorption of minerals and nutrients. It synthesizes essential vitamins like vitamin K, folic acid, and amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein. And then it creates these beneficial products called short chain fatty acids that travel throughout our body and help regulate inflammation. So how does the gut microbiome work? So this is a simplistic visualization of how the microbiome works. We're saying good and bad. Um, it really is more complicated than that. But for, um, for this presentation, let's say the, we have all of us have good bugs and we have bad bugs. There's no way to get rid of the, the bad bugs. If we were to take massive amounts of antibiotics to try to get rid of them, we would get rid of a lot of the good ones. So we don't want to do that. Um, what we want to do is um, feed, empower, and create an optimal uh, lifestyle for the good microbes so that they can thrive. And then they can do all the essential jobs, which one of them is basically keeping um, these bad ones in con under control. Um, so we have these good, which are commensal microbes, and we have the pathogenic or disease-promoting microbes under certain circumstances. The good may act a little bit bad, and under circumstances, the bad may act a little bit good. But in general, this is uh, a good way to visualize this system. So then, what do these microbes make? So they make a lot of different stuff, but one of the ones that I want to uh, focus on are um, that when we eat fiber, and fiber, we don't mean from supplements, we mean in the form of whole plant foods, the microbes, that's their food too, okay? They only eat plant-based foods. Um, they don't eat animal products. When, if we feed them animal products, you'll see what's gonna happen. But when we uh, feed the good microbes, um, plant-based foods or fiber, they digest them, they ferment them. So it's that, oh, I, I just ate, you know, this bowl of beans, or I feel the low gas. Okay, yeah, that's the microbes working there to digest all that, all that good carbohydrate. And then they in turn create these products called short chain fatty acids. The short chain fatty acids have numerous beneficial functions throughout our body. And again, they travel and communicate with other systems, including the brain. So short chain fatty acids can cross the blood brain barrier, which not many things can do, like glucose can do that. And short chain fatty acids can do that. And not many other uh, things can cross for our own protection, right? For the brain to be protected. So the three main ones that have been studied um, of the short chain fatty acids are acetate, propionate, and butyrate. And they each serve a different function in our body. So again, let's define these terms. So um, we've all heard of probiotics, right? Probiotics are these beneficial microbes that uh, confer a beneficial um, uh, result in our body. And those, pro those are probiotics that we may take by supplements um, that we may find in food, but they're also the ones that are beneficial that are already there in our gut, right? Those are the ones that we want to empower with the good stuff. So how do we empower them with the good stuff? They're common prebiotics. Prebiotics are found in high fiber foods. So right now we know that not 
the research hasn't caught up to the fact that all plant-based foods are prebiotics, but I think it's moving in that direction. Right now, we know that um, certain elements of plant-based foods serve as specific food for the microbiota. Again, this is an ongoing field. I think eventually it'll caught on that most uh, plant-based foods are in some way prebiotics. Um, but what we do know is that it comes from whole plant foods. And then once we feed them these whole plant foods to our microbiome, they in turn create these short chain fatty acids that we spoke about. So what do the short chain fatty acids do? So they actually serve as the main source of energy for the cells that line our digestive system, our colon, okay? And they, and, and, and actually our small intestine too. And they help regulate various processes throughout the body. For example, they protect the mucus layer that lines the gut. That is a very important layer. And we're going to see the visualization uh, in a couple slides. They're involved in fat deposition. So when we, we want to talk about weight loss, diabetes, and all these metabolic syndromes, the, the, the money is on these short-chain fatty acids, so we really need to optimize um, our microbiome so that they can create all these wonderful products. And then inflammation, uh, autoimmune disease, allergies, et cetera, um, that is, um, that it's heavily involved with the short-chain fatty acids. And then we said regulation of the immune system. So if the good microbes um, create short-chain fatty acids, what do the bad microbes create? So this is one of the things that the bad microbes create. They create other inflammatory products, but this is one of them. I'm sure a lot of you have heard about TMAO, trimethylamine oxide. Um, and just like the good ones create the short chain fatty acids, the pathogenic or disease causing microbes, they create a byproduct called TMAO, trimethylamine oxide. Um, they also create uh, secondary bile acids, which are associated with uh, cancers and inflammation. So, but let's talk about specifically TMAO. Western style diets, um, we know are typically high in saturated fat. They stimulate the production of this byproduct called TMAO. How do they do that? The TMAO is produced by the gut microbiota when we ingest L-carnitine. L-carnitine comes from red meat, supplements, and energy drinks. And when we ingest choline coming from red meat, liver, eggs, and dairy, okay? So um, the microbiome creates, ingests these products, creates TMA, and then in the liver, it gets oxidized to TMAO. So TMAO has been as associated with all types of disorders, including type 2 diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, chronic disease, and many, many others, okay? Um, and what's interesting is that studies that show that studies show that people who consume a plant-based diet, like for example, vegans, they don't, they don't create TMAO, okay? So um, even, I think, um, one of the studies showed that even if you fed vegans meat products, I think it would take more than X number of days, more, more than a week to even start seeing TMAO in their body. So they don't even harbor microbiota that can create this. So that's uh, really interesting and exciting. And it tells us a lot, you know, about, about disease. So we said that all of us have the good bugs and we all have the bad bugs. So what we want is a microbial balance, okay? We want a balance where the good bugs have everything they need in their environment, um, meaning a healthy lifestyle, right? Anything they, everything they need in their environment to work optimally, to protect us from disease, to, um, to do all the functions in their body. 
when they don't have what they need, meaning we're starving them or we're feeding the bad ones, then there's going to be an imbalance. Okay. That can happen through that, uh, the poor nutrition, like a, a high fat, low fiber diet, for example, standard aware American diet or standard Western diet, it can happen through medications too. So, um, we know that certain medications cause microbial imbalance, um, things like that have been associated with microbial imbalances are obviously antibiotics, right? That's, you know, that, um, PPIs, antiacids, um, uh, steroids are another example, um, or contraceptives are another example. So, when there was a study um, that was uh, presented in the European Digestive Disease Week, I think it was a year and a half ago, right before the pandemic started, that actually showed that of, you know, they compared like 30 most commonly used medications, 17 of them disrupted the microbiome. So most medications can disrupt the microbiome. We also cannot um, say that supplements don't disrupt the microbiome. So that's why we need to be very wise, very discerning when it comes to anything we put in our body, really ask our doctors, hey, do I need this? Okay, good. So I'm deficient in something, so I need to supplement. Perfect. Okay. So, but not taking things, you know, um, and just like taking things over the counters or because somebody else said it was uh, healthy for us. We really don't know if that's going to affect the microbiome um, poorly. In fact, I just had a patient um, today who had taken, uh, you'll love this, AJ, uh, had taken a, uh, keto, uh, colon cleanse, um, <sighs> was hospitalized for a week with diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, uh, horrible inflammation throughout her gut. And now I have to decipher, is this, you know, something else? Was there an underlying disease? Was this just due to the keto colon cleanse? What's going on? I've seen this before colitis happening after we take, um, these kind of weight loss, um, you know, supplements. So, um, so medications can certainly disrupt our gut microbiome. Environmental toxins can disrupt our gut microbiome. There's actual evidence that you know, it's, it's controversial, uh, but um, pesticides can potentially uh, disrupt our gut microbiome. So we can discuss that more at length later on. At the end of the day, if you're feeding your gut microbiome healthy plants, really that's num the number one, okay? Um, so we can touch about that later in the, in the questions. Uh, sedentarism, so not, you know, being, you know, sedentary, not being active at all. Like right now I'm sitting, but I was seeing patients earlier on. So I was using my standing desk. So trying to be more active throughout your day and really putting in time to uh, do physical exercise is what's going to optimize our gut microbiome. Um, and chronic stress, as we said, especially early life uh, trauma, but really stress at any point where it becomes chronic stress. So it's not the stress of like the good stress that our body needs, like, oh, I'm going to have a conversation today that is live with AJ. That's good stress, right? But chronic stress, stress that we cannot control, that is associated with intestinal dysbiosis or this gut imbalance, gut microbiome imbalance that is really hurting our gut microbiome, our gut health, and our bodies. So... um. The microbiome and the immune system. So now it's going to get a little bit more technical. Hopefully, we can, you know, um, transmit all this information in in a good way. Um, so our immune system is made up of innate immunity and adaptive immunity. In, innate immunity is our first line of defense. So it means our skin, right? Our skin is protecting us from the outside world. It's not letting things inside. Our airways are doing the same thing and our gut lining, we think that's inside, but no, it's actually, it's, it's still part of the outside because 
the mouth and the anus have direct communication through our digestive system, and but they don't actually communicate. Our digestive system doesn't actually, um, you know, is not open to the inside of our body. It's not in a in a big way. So it is kind of think of it as the skin inside. Um, so um, all of these are our first line of defense from pathogens, from toxins. Um, but this immunity is not specific, meaning it's going to mount a response and it's going to halt um, most things from coming in. Then comes our adaptive immunity. That has a more specific response to particular antigens uh, presented and it creates memory cells. There's different types of memory cells. So with COVID, we're seeing not only is there an antibody, but there's also um T cell, like T cell um, memory cells that are not are are not the way we think of as as uh, creating antibodies. So it's really really interesting how our adaptive immunity uh, functions. But what you have to know is that it's a lot more specific. It means if you've been exposed to a pathogen in the past and you're re-exposed to it again, then you know um, the immune system will send signals and cells to go try to stop it. So. Our gut, as we said before, really um, has about 70 to 80% of our immune system inside it. And our colon wall is made up of epithelial cells and tight junctions. These are holding on together um, and sealed off from the outside world. So think about it as the skin in the inside, okay? It serves as our own cellular fortress to protect us from harm, when we ingest food, there's microbes and uh, harmful microbes in the food. When we drink water, there's harmful microbes in the water. So it's protecting us from a lot of that. It's protecting us from harmful chemicals. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's our first line of defense with everything that goes inside our body. Um, so the inner lining of the intestine, uh, it, so, so that, that's where the gut microbiome lives in the inner lining of our intestines. Okay. Um, that's where those hundred trillions of microbes are. They don't actually cross over uh, unless there's a problem to the inside of our bodies. And they help support this cellular wall by reinforcing those tight junctions. Um, and how they do that is with the short chain fatty acids. We talked about the short chain fatty acids help the energy for those tight junctions to remain together. Um, and by lining our intestinal system with a layer of mucus. So um, that's kind of our cellular fortress. And both of these systems keep harmful products out. On the other side of our cellular wall is, right, on the inside of our bodies is our gut-associated lymphoid tissue separated by this thin wall of cells. So if, if and you can see it here, there is, um, the microbes are all those green and yellow little circles. And then um, our um, the mucus layers, that pink stuff. And then the gray is the, the epithelial cells holding on really well together. And as you can see, a fiber rich diet is optimal because it keeps that mucus layer mature and it keeps the barrier function intact. But when you deprive the body of fiber, what happens? That mucus layer starts eroding and then the tightly bound cells start coming apart and the microbes are going to cross in, right? So that fortress is disrupted with a fiber-free diet. Um, and there, when it's disrupted, it crosses over to our body. Our immune system is there. That 70% of our immune system is waiting. Um, and that is protecting us, right? Um, 
So by working together, the microbiome and the immune system are preventing things from uh, like pathogens, uh, harmful products like lipopolysaccharides from entering our body. And this allows them to communicate with each other and regulate um, inflammation and immune response to invaders. So I love this visual because it really puts into perspective um, a fiber-rich diet versus a fiber-free diet. So because the microbes help reinforce our colonic wall, when there's an imbalance, meaning we have more of the bad ones or we're not feeding the good ones, uh, that epithelial layer starts to come loose. And this is called increased intestinal permeability or leaky gut, okay? It's the layman's term. But the medical term is increased intestinal permeability. So if our microbe remains disrupted long enough, then you know that mucus layer will come down and then harmful products will come in into our body. This leads to a cascade of inflammation and an impaired immune response. This could lead to overreaction of our immune system and rise in things like chronic inflammation that we see in obesity, diabetes, heart disease, chronic kidney disease, inflammatory bowel disease, autoimmune disorders, or it could give a rise to food allergies, especially if it develops, if this happens earlier on in childhood. Um, or it, this chronic inflammation, even though it's overreacting, because it's highly focused on the inflammation, it's under-focused on the other processes. So that puts us as more vulnerable for condition for viruses and infections. That's what we see happening now. Um, and I have a slide on this um, happening now in COVID, right? We know that these chronic conditions like obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, right? The immune system is hyper-focused on dealing with that chronic inflammation. It doesn't have room to actually um, stop the virus. It doesn't have, it, it's not a healthy immune system. It's overactive for the chronic inflammation and underactive to fight off infection. So we'll go back here. All right, so this is kind of like the same visual, but um, bigger where uh, things like a high fiber diet, like high in fruits, vegetables, whole grains. Um, in this study, they use the example of a Mediterranean diet, but we know that this happens too in um, whole food plant-based diets. Um, it feeds the microbiome, it creates that increased diversity. It keeps the intact permeability of the barrier function and then allows that to maintain a tolerance versus inflammation, right? We don't want them, we don't want the immune system overreacting when it's a benign pathogen uh, or benign anything. We want them reacting just exactly when they need to, right? And then on the other side on the right is the typical Western diet, high in red meat and processed foods and low in fiber. Um, which creates this imbalance of the gut microbiome because you're depriving the good microbes of food. So you're starving them. So you're allowing the bad ones to proliferate, increase in numbers, and the bad ones create these inflammatory uh, chemicals, cytokines. One of them is that TMAO. Um, and more importantly, the pathogenic microbes don't reinforce, they don't create short-chain fatty acids, so they don't reinforce the for cellular fortress. So that mucus layer starts to erode and then that barrier function comes off, it starts to separate and all these harmful microbes come into the body. That creates a loss of tolerance, meaning we're gonna be attacking things we shouldn't attack and we're uh, not gonna be attacking things that we should attack. So it, it creates an impaired immune response. 
So that was the hard part. Okay. So that was the more technical part. Um, hopefully, you know, that was understandable. And then we'll talk about just diet in general, you know, um, what does the diet say? So a lot of us have seen this study from Journal Nature in 2014 that showed that a diet, uh, a change in one's diet quickly reflected in, in a person's gut microbiome in a matter of days. Um, and for example, they put people on animal uh, rich diet um, and they saw that it created a microbiome that was full of bile tolerant microorganisms, um, which are the bad type. And guess what? these microbes that it promoted had more antibiotic resistance capabilities. So that's really alarming. So when we say, okay, okay, I'm going to give you this antibiotic for this infection. For a lot of people, the antibiotic may not work. Why? Because we have these microorganisms in our body that are resistant to antibiotics, to certain antibiotics. And, you know, we can talk about at length where that comes from. We know that a lot of animal feed has antibiotics in it. In fact, you know, that's creating the, the Academy for Infectious Disease declared that this is an area that needs to be regulated because it's creating a lot of antibiotic resistance within our populations. Um, and um, in general, it's estimated that 50% of antibiotic use in the United States is unnecessary, meaning uh, when you're giving an antibiotic for a viral infection. So that's why I always, um, I, it's not a shunning and a completely saying no modern medicine sucks because we know that it keeps us alive in many circumstances and it's very much needed, but it's having that honest conversation with your doctor asking them, look, do you think this is a bacteria or is this a virus? Like, do I really need these antibiotics? And if you do, you do, because if you have a UTI and um, your symptoms are not improving, that yeah, urinary tract infection can literally kill you within days. So, you know, um, it's having that open and honest relationship and, and conversation with your doctors to, to see if you really need the antibiotics. So it promoted these microbes that convert bile um, into secondary bile acids, which are associated with inflammation and colon and liver cancer. So this was the animal protein rich diet. And then we have other studies showing, and I recently presented on this, how migrating to industrialized nations, um, migration studies show that our gut microbiome actually decreases in diversity. So, um, you know, uh, a lot, you know, I'm Cuban. So basically, in, and a lot of Latin uh, population, we grew up on a diet that was high in um, legumes, beans, right? So we grew up eating beans every day or most days of the week. We grew up eating fruit. We grew up eating the vegetables that we had available. And, you know, meat products were kind of like shared amongst the entire family, right? You didn't get a steak as the main dish and then a side of vegetables. The main dish was rice, beans, and fruits and vegetables. So, um, and that's the same with Asian populations and, you know, African populations, as they migrate to more um, industrialized nations, they there's we know that there's a, a very quick decrease in the diversity of their gut microbiome. And this has been shown to be the case for um, all the different um, like minority populations in the United States. 
So um, I love this study because it compared two genetically similar populations, which is a group of African-Americans, you know, living in the United States and a group of rural South Africans. Um, and even though they're genetically similar, their diets couldn't be more different, right? African-Americans living in the United States, they consume a, a standard Western diet. Um, and the rural South Africans, they consume a rural diet, which is high in fiber, low in fat, and you know a little chunk of animal protein to be shared. And they, in general, have very low rates of colon cancer, while the African-Americans, we know that our Black communities suffer at a very high rate of early colon cancers. Um, and that's why our screening guidelines have been earlier for them for a long time. Um, so what did they do? They switched their diets, right? The African-American groups started eating a rural South African diet and vice versa. And then they saw that... Um, what they saw that is that fiber in, in the diet has a protective effect. We know this. It increases um, the production of short-chain fatty acids, which butyrate is one of them, um, by fermenting that fiber. And that the fat in the diet actually promotes the production of bioacid synthesis in the liver, which increases the risk of colon cancer. So when we Africanize the diet, that's how they called it, um, we reduce the evacuation of secondary bile acids, which are the bad ones associated with cancer by 70%, while the westernization of the diet, meaning you know more American style diet, increased those secondary bile acids by 400%. Um, so that, that is, those numbers are just insane. And then um, uh, what else? Another thing that they saw, which we said before, the high levels of TMAO in the blood, um, you know, pose an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, um, et cetera. Oh, and, and it was found that both the African-Americans before the intervention and, and the rural Africans after the intervention, there were high levels of choline, right? So that was interesting. The typical Western diet was associated with high levels of choline. So what is the good news? We said that our, our diet can quickly change our gut microbiome in a matter of days, but the, uh, it can be for the bad. But the good news is that it can be for the good too. That same study showed that switching to a plant-based diet resulted in a rapid change in the gut microbiome. Beneficial microbiota appeared and started reversing that inflammatory process. Um, we know that the lifespan of microorganisms is very short, about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, so in 24 hours, we can influence 50 generations of microbes. If you think about it, that's a huge deal. Um, so the lifespan of them, uh, their lifespan is very short and daily changes do really um, can lead to uh, very good results. And the more, you know, we improve our nutrition and our lifestyle, we can maintain those changes and, and start to reverse uh, and, and prevent a lot of diseases. So, you know, it goes without saying that the standard Western diet is deficient in fiber and it's rich in animal proteins, processed sugar, uh, foods and sugars. 97% of Americans don't get enough fiber. Um, a Lancet study um, that went on from 1990 to 2017 in 195 countries found that the leading dietary risk factors for death were high intake of sodium, low intake of whole grains, and low intake of fruits, okay? 
So the bottom line is the Western diet starves the gut mic the good microbes. And by eating processed foods and saturated fats, we're both feeding the bad microbes and starving the good bugs. So you're like double bad, right? <laughs> double hitting um, the body in a negative way. And it creates a hostile environment within our gut and a breeding ground for these inflammatory and disease causing microbes. So we know that our diet is killing us. Uh, Western style diets have been associated with the top killers, including cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, stroke, hypertension, cancer, obesity. They've also been associated with, you know, inflammatory bowel diseases, food allergies, et cetera, which are not, not the top killers, but they need to be mentioned. Um, and like I said before, many of these are the same risk factors that increase our risk of becoming sick from COVID-19 and dying. So um, studies have shown that obesity, type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease are chronic inflammatory states causing an immunosuppressed state and inability of the body to fight off infections. And this was the same graph we saw before. So now let's just uh, put it all together. Western diets and disorders of the immune system, low fiber and high saturated fat diets have been associated with so many disorders of the immune system, including autoimmune disease, such as inflammatory bowel disease, type one diabetes and rheumatoid arthritis, food allergies, skin inflammatory skin conditions like acne, eczema, and psoriasis, and respiratory conditions such as asthma, bronchitis, and upper respiratory infections. So the interesting thing is that food allergies are linked back to a microbial imbalance as well. So um, we have these regulatory uh, T cells that we call TREGs, T regulatory cells, and they are very important in the normal function of the digestive and the immune system. And certain bacterial species such as Clostridium bacteroides, they work together um, with short chain fatty acid butyrate to induce the production of TREGs. Without enough TREGs, we lose tolerance to protein in the diet, which can lead to different types of allergies. So this is one of the theories of why, you know, early antibiotic use in kids is resulting in this dysbiosis that is leading to an increase of food allergies. Now we're seeing kids with um, so many food allergies, right? Like I, I grew up around kids that never had any food allergies. And I'm sure you did too, AJ. Like now all of a sudden, all the kids have food allergies. And this is, you know, this is one of the reasons it goes back to this microbial imbalance. So what are the top foods to optimize our gut microbiome, our digestive system, and our immune health? So we know that eating a variety of fruits and vegetables and plant-based foods, um, the more the better, the more colorful the better, uh, at least 30 you know, per week is ideal to feed because each subset of our microbes, they feed off of different fibers. So there's countless fibers you know, we, we simplify by saying, oh, we have soluble and insoluble fiber. That's not true. There's, yes, there's soluble and insoluble fiber, but each plant has numerous types of fibers. Um, so each subset of species of microbes, they group together and they're in charge of digesting different fibers in each food. So by targeting a wide variety of plant-based foods, then we're feeding a wide variety of microbes. Um, the more color means the more antioxidants. We, at the same time, we wanna avoid processed foods and refined sugars because they feed the bad microbes, right? 
And we want to avoid those red and processed meats because they, they also feed the bad microbes. They're incredibly uh, unhealthy, high in saturated fat, and they've been associated with colon cancer. In fact, uh, processed meats are a type one carcinogen, just the same as cigarette smoking for lung cancer. So how to optimize our nutrition? You know, um, you know, I think this is more for people that are not already plant-based. So the way that I approach it with my patients is um, I look at the foods of the plant-based foods that are, they're already eating, such as legumes, fruits, or whole grains, vegetables. And I start eat, I tell them eat more diversity of them. So for example, if you only have um, three types of vegetables ever, okay, let's try a new one this week. Let's try a couple new ones next week. And I go building on what they're already processing and digesting. Um, and uh, for example, if you eat three different types of fruit per week, exactly, add one or two more different ones. Um, now, if you never eat a whole food group like legumes, you don't eat legumes at all, it would be hard to start you off eating like the harder to process legumes. So there's a gradient when it comes to legumes and some of the easiest to digest are things like lentils, peas, um, edamame. Okay, so I'll start with those and then build from there. Um, at the same time, eliminating those processed foods, processed meats, dairy, eggs, and then I would go, those how, that's the order I do it. I eliminate processed foods, processed meats first, then I eliminate, you know, dairy and eggs if they, if they are willing to go forward with that. Um, and then, so um, then four-legged animals and then two-legged animals, etc. And then I tell them, start slowly, add a new food every two to three days. Don't think that you have to make these changes day to night, because especially if you have a baseline of digestive uh, symptoms or digestive disorder, um, you may have a lot of issues digesting these foods. So I tell them, go very slowly and build on the ones that you're already eating and then start taking away some of the bad ones. And then little by little, um, in a couple of weeks, they're, they're mostly plant-based after a couple of weeks. Um, and then I tell them with legumes, soak them, um, soak them at least 24 hours. Uh, it's, if you have issues digesting legumes, throw out that water, put new water in, and then you can start cooking them. And like we said, soybeans, lentils, and split peas and peas are easier to digest. And also very easy to digest are starchy root vegetables like potatoes, um, sweet potatoes, uh, cassava, depending on, you know, where you're from, taro. Um, we eat a lot of taro, Asians eat a lot of taro. And then I start with soups um, and fruit and veggie smoothies. I always tell patients to drink a smoothie as the first, you know, if you're going to drink a smoothie, drink it the first meal of the day because your body, your gut has had time to fast. It's, it's been resting for a long time. And now you're going to give it um, a pre-digested food, right? Because the blender pre-digests the foods you're going to give it a rush of nutrients um, that it's going to need to ferment. Um, but if you give a smoothie in the middle of the day, in between meals, then that fermentation may make them really gassy and uncomfortable. So I tell them, drink the smoothie as the first thing of the day. It's going to be super refreshing, super energizing. And then you just eat your foods the rest of the day, if you choose to have a smoothie, of course. Um, and then I tell them, uh, start with cooked vegetables and then, uh, you can, you know, include later on as we progress, you can do more raw and, uh, we do whole grains, uh, slowly 
um, and we just we can discuss you know gluten etc and then we leave raw vegetables and harder to process legumes for last um, and then digestive issues if you already have digestive problems you should make these changes under the guidance of a specialist it would ideally be like a registered dietitian that knows about uh, plant-based nutrition right because not all doctors not all healthcare workers are the same trained the same etc and avoid sudden changes uh, avoid unnecessary medications energy um drinks supplement well you don't need energy drinks ever but um supplements or protein bars and, and, and powders, avoid them. Always ask your doctor um, if, you, if that's something you need to do. Um, and if it was not prescribed by a doctor, you know, really ask before you start consuming over-the-counter products. And these are my eight tips to optimize your immune health. We saw that the, gut, the immune health really is intimately tied to the gut health. We cannot separate these two. So whatever is good for the gut is going to be good for the immune system. So really, when we discuss, you know, improving our immune system, optimizing it now, especially, but really ever, um, we need to be paying attention to the gut microbiome. And these are eat real food, whole foods, uh, consume mostly or 100% plant-based nutrition. The goal is 30 diverse plant foods per week or more, but you're not going to go from 10 to 30, right? It's going to be slowly. Um, also include fermented foods. They're incredibly beneficial, but if you don't need to consume them every day, it's just part of your rotation in that 30 plus plant uh, foods per week. Um, I like starting with miso paste and tempeh because they're easier to digest for a lot of people. Um, I think sauerkraut may be a little bit more difficult to digest. Um, for some people, pickled vegetables are great. And then kimchi, you know, not everybody likes kimchi. It's very spicy, um, but that's great too. Um, so there's a lot in terms of probiotic foods that we can do. We want to minimize or avoid toxic substances like alcohol, tobacco, pesticides, medications, and unnecessary supplements. So alcohol does is associated with a decrease in the microbial diversity. Tobacco is associated with a decreased diversity of your gut microbiome. Studies show that pesticides are too, um, but that the pesticide is still an ongoing area of research. And we already discussed that med some medications create that dysbiosis, so always consult with your doctor if you really need to be continued taking this. And then one of the least um, emphasized of the tips um, in, in, our, in, in general, and the one really that should be the most emphasized is go out into nature. So one teaspoon of productive earth has like a hundred trillion microbes in it. One teaspoon of productive earth, meaning earth that has not been overly processed, overly sprayed, etc. So just getting your hands in the dirt, growing a little uh, plant in a pot, um, all of that increases your microbial diversity. So, and especially with kids, like you want, and with dogs, like I let my dogs go outside and run around because it's so healthy for their gut health and their immune system. Um, so really the studies show that at least 120 minutes of being out in nature per week 
is uh, associated with uh, optimal health. So that's two hours in nature per week. So at least that every week is what we should be doing. Obviously getting restful sleep. We know that decreased sleep or poor sleep increases our cortisol levels, with the, which does affect the gut microbiome negatively. So we wanna make sure we're optimizing sleep. Practicing mindfulness and de-stressing techniques. All of us have stress. Stress is a reality that we all have to deal with. We, it's not going anywhere. It's, the, it's part of the human condition. And it's about how we manage that stress. So as part of my treatment strategies, I prescribe um, breathing techniques. I prescribe meditation because all of that not only helps our gut-brain connection, it, it optimizes our gut microbiome. Obviously, exercise is you know, needs to be part of of a healthy lifestyle. We know that exercise diversifies the gut microbiome too. So make sure you're getting at least 30 minutes of physical activity per day. And social connectivity um, really decreases our our stress levels, you know, in general, (laughs) not necessarily during COVID, but uh, in general, being connected uh, to our loved ones and really uh, improves our stress levels and it optimizes our health. So those are my tips. And um, I do see patients virtually, nationally and internationally. I really recommend subscribing to my page because I do have a health blog um, where I, you know, I have different topics. Like I wrote an article on COVID and the and gut health or the microbiome. We know COVID changes the microbiome. So that was really interesting. Um, and I'm on Instagram as plant-based gut doc. Wow, that was amazing. You should see all the wonderful comments in the chat. My favorite thing you said, I took some notes was pets promote a more diverse microbiome. Yes, I it's uh, so if we think about it, pets, um, they're like an extension of earth, if you think about it, right? So they not only drag in dirt with their paws, um, but even if you're like in a city, right, where they're not exposed to dirt, um, they have a microbiome, uh, as all living things do. So any exposure to diversity in the microbiome, whether it's siblings, other kids, other adults, and pets, is gonna is gonna increase our gut microbiome especially with pets because they lick us you know we're touching them we're touching our face they lick us all these things so really there is a translocation of microbes happening there because people ask me they're like how do pets increase your gut microbiome how does being like playing with the dirt increase your microbiome like they think it's like biosmosis it magically happens no like it's a very tactile process we're touching it we're playing with it um, sitting on the ground outside, you know, all of that. Um, it's a very uh, physical process and there is translocation into, into our mouths and therefore into our gut. Well, from now on, you know, a lot of, I do let my dog kiss me and I let other people's dogs kiss me. And if somebody says, Ooh, that's gross. I'm going to go say, Hey, I have my doctor's approval because I'm merely diversifying my gut microbiome. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I always tell people like, as long as, you know, it's not a sick, uh, animal, it's fine. And um, with kids, you know, before like probably one year old, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but in general, you know, kids are going to be touching everything and putting their hands in their mouth. So it really doesn't matter. It's, they're going to get exposed to it. Absolutely. Do you have time, uh, Dr. Mendes, for a couple yes. of questions? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 
Good. I'll first answer the one that came in for me because I got a lot of compliments on the t-shirt that I'm wearing today. And it's actually uh, designed by a doctor named Dr. Sill, who's writing a book and I'm hoping to have her on the show. So I put the link in the chat box where to get it. And, and there's a few other styles that are just, they're really soft and they're really cute. So cute. I shared, and, and I shared them with my husband. Here's the other one. So anyway, just check it out if you're interested. They're really soft. I like things that are soft. So that's why I like it. It looks so super much. soft and comfy. I love They're it. They're really comfy. Thank you. So um, I always give priority to the people that sent their questions in in advance. So I'm going to do these first. And if you have time, we'll do the chat. But there is one in the chat that's super important because Paul wants to know, do you accept any kind of insurances for your consultations? So that's a great question. So I'm physically seeing patients in Indiana. I work for a hospital system. Um, so um, that's the only time that I do accept insurance. Um, outside of that, you know, insurance restricts us in many ways. Like the consultations can only be 30 minutes. And in that 30 minutes, we are supposed to do everything. So that's why I started seeing patients out of insurance, because I really can devote as long as I want, as long as we need to really uh, get patients healing in a very significant way. Um, so only in the Indiana through insurance, otherwise without insurance. Like so outside. I didn't realize you lived in Indiana. Why did I think you lived in Florida? I live in Florida. So my new, uh, I have a new full-time position, which was really part-time, but um, I really found a great position. I was here in Florida in private practice and decided to quit my job during the pandemic. Um, and then I went and searched for the optimal position and I find I found it in Indiana. So I'm there nine days a month, but the rest of the time I'm working virtually from Florida. Nice. Terrific. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So the first question submitted in advance is from Melanie. She says, my doctor recommends fish oil as an anti-inflammatory to heal the gut. What do you recommend? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, so definitely omega threes are very important. Um, you know, they, in, in, in our plant-based world, we, there's a group of us that are pro, uh, certain supplements like B12 others say, you know, get it from nutritional yeast. I think it's important. Um, and I think, uh, uh, the sure size, you know, they're the, the brain experts. They recommend that earlier in life and later in life, we should try to supplement with omega threes. It de definitely does not have to be from fish oil. Um, so my recommended, um, omega three is just from algae. Um, you can find that, you know, um, really in, in certain, in, in several places, uh, one of the brands that we like, it's in liquid form. We use it because it's um, it, it's in liquid form for our son. So all of us just end up taking it is Vivo Life. It lasts us uh, several months. Um, and uh, we it's just algae, algae omega-3. But also, you know, you can get um, omega-3s from chia seeds, flax, and hemp. So there's definitely plant-based foods that have it. Um, I... I, I think that um, unless you know you're going to be consuming all those seeds and like walnuts, et cetera, every single day, I would take a supplement a couple times per week. And then the days that you're eating those, you don't need to. Um, but really, you can get algae omega-3 um, in, in several places. Great. Thank you. Uh, these two questions are, they asked to remain anonymous because they're about poop. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is, is it safe for one to perform a digital disimpaction on themselves? Yeah. So that is uh, like a good question. So first of all, you have to ask yourself why, you know, why are you performing a digital disimpaction? Do you have chronic 
uh, constipation. And if you do, you really need to get that worked up by, by a specialist. Um, so it happens often, you know, very often women um, that have had pelvic surgeries that they develop a pelvic floor dysfunction, meaning the contraction and relaxation of the muscles down there is not working the way it should. So that the stool just sits in the rectum and they don't either, they don't get the urge to go or they push and nothing comes out. So I definitely think that there's a lot we can do to work with a patient who has to have uh, manual disimpactions to get you to the point that you don't need them. Okay. So I really recommend working with a specialist to um, help you with that and ask them, you know, how often should I be doing this? Is this safe? Because it really depends on your anatomy. Um, so make sure that you ask your doctor that. Because right, that's one thing you can't do telemedicine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not yet. Not yet anyway. Yeah. So this next question is, is when I wake up in the morning, I often have a bowel movement almost immediately or very soon thereafter. But some days it's not until 1 or 2 p.m. And I notice that I do not get hungry until after I pooped. Is this psychological or is there just less room in the GI tract so that I don't get hungry until I actually poop? So it's not psychological at all. It's actually very physiologic. Um, so we know that within the first hour of being awake, our body is sending us signals down there to evacuate the contents in our gut. Those signals are very important to pay attention to and not dismiss. So I tell them, I, I put my patients on regimens where it's a morning evacuation regimen, just like a sleep hygiene, we have an evacuation hygiene. So when you wake up in the morning, I want you to be very relaxed, very in tune with your body. I want you to be drinking water. And if you like coffee, perfect, because we know coffee is a stimulant for the digestive system um, without dairy, of course. Um, I want you drinking coffee um, if you drink it. If you don't drink it and you like tea, perfect, that's fine. So water and tea or water and coffee. And then I want you doing breathing exercises. I just want you sitting down and I want you to focusing on your breath, possibly doing a body scan. Um, we do different types of breath work, like four to six breathing, where we inhale for four, hold for two, exhale for six. It just kind of gets the body really relaxed. Then we do the body scanning, meaning we're closing our eyes and we're going through what sensations is the body feeling? We go down and then we focus on the gut and the rectum and what sensations is it sending you. So if you pay attention, your body is sending you signals. Um, we just, we're so hurried in the morning. We're grabbing our phone. We are out the door. We're really dismissing what the signals the body is sending to us. So I, I want you to focus on that and that'll get you going every single day so that you don't have to, you know, wait for that 1 p.m. Now to answer your question, it's a very physiologic response. The body waits for evacuation in order for the stomach to sing, no, I'm hungry, give me food because the rest is empty. So it's very normal. Um, I would still want you to do your little regimen um, to help you have a bowel movement earlier on, but really, you know, um, it, it's normal. And I would still try to, you know, put in uh, water, tea or coffee and a little snack in the morning um, to get your system saying, hey, empty out your contents because I got food in my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like putting, yeah, you don't want to put uh, gas in the tank that's already full, <laughs> sort of. Nice. So now we can get to some of the live questions, as many as you have time for. Yeah. Carolyn says, is celery juice good for an ulcerative intestine? Is what? 
Is celery juice good oh. for an ulcerative intestine? So, um, you know, I'm part of this 14,000 inflammatory bowel disease uh, group uh, where they have Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And they, um, uh, some of them find celery juice good and they feel a lot better drinking celery juice. I know other people that don't tolerate it well. In general, I'm not a huge fan of juicing, but if you're just juicing like one product like celery juice or ginger or turmeric or whatever, I'm fine with that. Um, just know that you're not getting the fiber from the celery. If you feel good drinking it, you can drink it. I just wouldn't get in the habit of drinking um, like fruit juices or juicing in general. I'd rather you do a smoothie because that has the fiber. Um, but if you feel good doing it, you can do a, a, a celery juice whenever you want. Great. Thank you. Elizabeth says, how does the COVID vaccine in general, I mean, specifically in vaccines in general, affect our gut microbiome? Um, so I love this question because actually I was having a very a good discussion yesterday with, with somebody on Instagram about this. So, so we know that, um, and in fact, there was a study, I think, from the UK that was recommending uh, people take prebiotics and probiotics before they got the vaccine to optimize their gut microbiome so that the immune, you know, the immune gut microbiome effect was perfect to receive the vaccine and increased immunity. So the study showed that when we take prebiotics or probiotics, you have a better immune response to the vaccine so that, you know, optimizing your gut microbiome improves your immune response to the vaccine, which we know that, right? Because based on this presentation that I just said, we need to optimize our gut microbiome to, you know, to optimize our immune system. So it makes sense that an optimal gut microbiome would optimize um, the, the protection we get from the vaccine. So that's what we know. We know that improving your gut microbiome will improve your immune system to respond the best it can to the COVID vaccine. We know COVID not the COVID vaccine. There's been no study to show that the COVID vaccine actually hurts the gut microbiome or th that I know of. I haven't seen any vaccines hurt the gut microbiome. Um, but specifically, the COVID hasn't been shown to that uh, to do that. But we know COVID, um, the virus, SARS-CoV-2, um, actually has more intestinal receptors than lung receptors. So there's more receptors accepting the virus in our gut than there are in the lungs. And um, it has been, you know, COVID has been shown in the stool. The SARS-CoV virus has been shown to be shed in the stool. Um, in fact, one of the ways that they track how many people in a population, like let's say in a given city have been infected by COVID uh, or by the virus is that they test the source. They test the sewer water. So we know that COVID actually worsens our gut microbiome. It decreases the diversity of the gut microbiome tremendously. I have patients who are long haulers who were previously whole food plant-based uh, and running marathons who actually their immune system responded fine when they got um, the infection, but then it developed an autoimmune disorder afterwards and they, you know, they're still having a hard time to recover. So um, you know, that is really concerning. We know that people who ha get the sickest from COVID, their microbiome is even more in disarray. So mild cases, some disarray, moderate and severe, a lot of disarray in the gut microbiome. So um, 
that tells us, and it's what we said, right? The immune system and the gut microbiome work hand in hand. And this virus specifically binds to our gut and creates a, creates an, a, a huge dysbiosis. Now, if we get the vaccine, then um, basically we are, you know, we're not protecting ourselves from being exposed to the virus again. But what we're doing is that that body, our body is primed to be like, oh, I already know this virus. I'm going to stop it. So it actually prevents that replication process. So even if a few of the viruses bind to our gut, it prevents it from replicating in our body. So it will prevent a, a huge dysbiosis um, is our, you know, is our, our hypothesis at this point. Um, and, and really, you know, in optimizing our gut microbiome, we're both optimizing how effective the vaccine is going to be, but also we're optimizing our immune response if we get it. So, um, hopefully that answers that question. Great. Thank you. Uh, Robin said, is there a connection between taking antibiotics early and acquiring celiac disease? Yeah, so that's a great question. So we know that, um, you know, celiac disease is basically has a genetic predisposition about 1% of the population um, has celiac disease, and there is a genetic predisposition, we know that with any, any disease in general, there usually is a genetic predisposition, but we know that the gut microbiome, for example, one of their jobs is to turn on and off genes. So um, if we give them an optimal environment, they're not going to be turning off damaging genes. So we know something environmental happens that causes your predisposition to celiac disease to be turned on. That could be toxins in the environment, it could be food, it could be an infection, it could be medication. So certainly antibiotics could cause that to be turned on. That is great, thank you. So I just saw an interesting question on dysbiosis from April. Does increased intestinal permeability always manifest as gut issues like gas and bloating? Can it manifest as headaches with no noticeable gut issues? Yes, um, absolutely. So um, we, it, it, it's funny because um, patients will suffer from something like acne or migraines or any, really anything. And then later on they'll develop digestive systems. And it's not until they develop the digestive system that I go, okay, what other conditions do you have? Okay. Yeah. All of this is associated with an imbalance in your gut microbiome. So absolutely. You do not have to have GI symptoms, um, to actually have, uh, something that may have originated in the gut. So increased intestinal permeability is being associated and dysbiosis in general, that imbalance is being associated with over a hundred different diseases from, you know, migraines, Alzheimer's, anxiety, depression. Um, so if you just go down, you know, um, autoimmune disorders, food allergies, cardiovascular disease, pancreatic cancer, so many, many different things. So um, absolutely, it could just manifest as a, another symptom. Great, thank you. Renee says, can you talk about the possible dangers of emulsifiers to the gut lining? And do you know which plant milks don't have emulsifiers? Yes, so there's not very many that don't have emulsifiers. So really the best bet if you make it yourself. So now, uh, so like if you get a handful of cashews, you just blend them in a high-speed blender, you have cashew milk right there, right? Uh, a handful of cashews with water. 
um, soak them and then you blend them, you got cashew milk. So you know that that's not going to have emulsifiers. So very few brands don't have emulsifiers. So we know um, uh, Elmhurst doesn't have emulsifiers. Um, uh, Mock doesn't have emulsifiers. And there's two more. I think Vivian Chen, Plateful Health on Instagram has a visual with that. Um, but those two, Mock um, and Elmhurst don't have emulsifiers. But really, if you want to make delicious, you know, plant-based milk, um, I, the quickest one I know of is cashews because you, can, you don't even have to filter it. You really just need a high-speed blender in the water. You pre-soak them, then you blend it, and you got cashew milk, and it's so rich and delicious. Um, emulsifiers have been linked to increased intestinal permeability. Um, they're, that's, that's one of the things that, why we think processed foods and refined sugars, um, one of the reasons why they're so damaging to the body is also because of not only the refined sugar aspect, but the emulsifier aspect. Emulsifiers are binders, like kind of binding oil and water, and they are in everything. Every processed uh, food has an emulsifier in it. The list is over 30 different emulsifiers. So they sneak it in. It's that gorgums and soy lecithin and all these different names that they have. Um, uh, over 30 different products are known to be emulsifiers and they are associated with increased intestinal permeability and inflammatory bowel disease, et cetera. That is Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, that's what got me to start making my own again was hearing that from the doctors on the summit. So yeah. Let's see, I thought I saw something about which do you make AJ? Um, you know, I, I actually make a lot of walnut milk because, you know, the walnut is so healthy and it, it doesn't need I have the nutra milk machine. So it takes only three minutes. Oh Yeah, that's right. I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. But but any kind, I mean, I make oat milk, I mix it up a little bit, you know, yeah. So Jermaine says, what are the best foods to eat for ulcerative colitis? <laughs> so, you know, I am, aside from being a gastroenterologist and I'm, I'm an inflammatory bowel disease specialist. So that is my even sub, sub, sub specialty, um, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. So um, we know that a plant-based diet, um, the studies have shown that a plant-based diet uh, along with your medication can put you into deeper remission for your inflammatory bowel disease. We know that plant-based diets are associated with protection from inflammatory bowel disease. Like it actually is very protective from Crohn's disease. Um, and, um, and once you do develop it, getting on a plant-based diet, you know, along with whatever medication you may need puts you quicker and in deeper remission than just the medication alone. That's what the studies show. So, uh, plant-based food, obviously. Um, but we know that a lot of patients with digestive disorders have a lot of food intolerances. So I really recommend, um, you know, seeing one of our, if you do have food intolerances, um, I recommend seeing one of our registered dietitians uh, that are GI specialists, uh, and they can put you on our protocol. We have an IBD protocol that is, you know, a nutrition and lifestyle protocol. And, um, and it, our patients are doing great. Um, so if you, if you feel like that's something that you may need, definitely, you know, reach out to us. Great. Thanks. There's a question. What does chemotherapy do to the gut microbiome? Yeah. So, uh, that's a really good question. So, you know, unfortunately chemotherapy, um, is it, it targets, uh, so 
there's different types of chemotherapy, right? Some of them are more targeted um, and some of them are systemic, meaning they affect the entire body. The ones that are systemic, um, that affect the entire body, we know that they're going to kill all the fastly reproducing cells in the body. So one of them, one of the cells that fastly reproduces is the lining of our intestines. So it is going to kill the, the gut lining. And that's why people get, you know, diarrhea and nausea, vomiting um, with chemotherapy. Um, so it is going to kill that. And it does disrupt the gut microbiome in a negative way. Now, if you have to weigh, you know, is this going to kill me? Uh, like if this disease is going to kill me um, versus a microbial, you know, is it going to cause a microbial imbalance? I think, you know, I'd rather it go with the microbial imbalance um, so that I can still live and we can still optimize your microbiome at any time. Um, the microbiome is not lost. It's highly resilient. Okay. So um, it comes back when we optimize the conditions. So definitely whatever's going to keep you alive is what, <laughs> and, and living for a long time. Great. Thanks. Patty says, any thoughts on why whole food plant-based no oil would make bleeding external hemorrhoids much worse and painful than eating vegan? But doesn't, I mean, how, how do they know that's the reason? Cause doesn't always equal effect. I mean, they could be speculating that that's, I mean, unless every time she goes back to eating oil that she doesn't have them. Yeah. So again, we have to, I don't like to, um, so those are just cause and effect, but if we break it down, a vegan diet is more highly processed, right? So um, if you have trouble digesting whole plant food because you have a dysbiosis, then it may worsen your constipation actually. So a vegan diet in relationship to that is quote unquote, more easily digestible, right? We said that we rely on the gut microbiome to digest whole plant foods. But if you're eating a vegan, high, vegan highly processed diet, you're just absorbing the fats and you know the macronutrients, but you don't have to do a lot of processing of those foods. So this, I see this all the time. What I would recommend is one, getting to the root cause of why you're not able to you know digest um, these foods as well. It can, that can be a you know, transferring into constipation and, and worsening of your hemorrhoids. So get to the root cause of why this is happening. And then we can work on that. I would also pay attention a lot to your water intake. Remember, fiber brings in water into the gut in order to come out. But if you don't have enough water in your body, it's going to stay stuck. It's not going to come out. So for every like five grams of additional fiber you're eating, you have to be drinking X amount more water. So at least two liters um, of water, two to three liters of water a day is, um, should be you know, the recommended amount, at least. If you're exercising a lot, then a lot more. And uh, when we switch to a whole fat food plant-based diet, sometimes we can experience bloating and constipation at first, that's normal. But we need, you know, if those systems, those symptoms persist after a couple of weeks, I definitely would, you know, reach out to somebody like me or one of our D's or anybody who knows about plant-based nutrition uh, to walk you through getting to the bottom of why you have, you, you tolerate a vegan processed diet more. Right. Great. Thanks. Elizabeth says, since giving up cheese last year, I find that I can now eat onions in hot sauce, which I previously would get a bad sick belly when eating. Is there anything harmful about using hot sauce? I'm finding I put it on quite a bit of my food. See, again, cause doesn't always equal effect. Maybe it's the giving up cheese that has made things better, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so absolutely giving up cheese, uh, improved your gut microbiome to be able to digest, uh, these, 
you know, onions. Um, so hot sauce is not bad for you. So if um, hot sauce is, you know, has capsaicin and it has like different herbs and spices that are really good for our body. So I always tell people, how do you feel when you eat it? If you feel like it's giving you heartburn, okay, then don't eat it, you know, um, especially when it's something like could be potentially controversial, like hot sauce. Um, it exacerbates some people's hemorrhoids. But if you feel like you're doing well, lots of populations, lots of lots of populations uh, have hot foods as part of their diet and it's extremely healthy and they're antimicrobial they kill they help our body kill off uh bad bugs in our stomach so so if it's not hurting you it's not bad for you at all great um so i, I want to respect your time so we'll just do one more question because one question is about constipation and man we need a whole episode on that that's what <laughs> I mean, the whole summit was devoted for that. Yeah. We had probably just six speakers talking about the possible causes of it for somebody that's on a plant-based diet. So last question will be, will short chain fatty acids help an ulcer? As you mentioned that they produce, protect the mucus layer that lines the intestine, which foods would be best to speed up the healing of an ulcer? So it depends on where the ulcer is. So if we're talking about an ulcer in our stomach, which is usually where we're talking, you know, mostly about ulcers, it won't protect you because the short chain fatty acids are created in the colon and they circulate through our peripheral system, through our blood system, um, throughout the body, but they're not going to do a whole lot in your stomach. Um, so in general, if you have an ulcer, this is where, you know, especially if you have an ulcer in your stomach, this is the time that you, I would recommend an antiacid medication. I would do it for a short period of time, uh, two weeks, uh, a month, and then uh, rechecking to make sure the ulcer healed. And that's it. If it healed, okay, we're going to optimize the rest of your health, but you don't need to be taking the medication any longer. But that would be a case where I would um, see why you have an ulcer. The two most common causes of ulcers are H. pylori infection in the stomach, and NSAID use. So ibuprofen, naproxen, Motrin, Advil, Aleve, and all these uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are associated with ulcers. So I would make sure that you don't have H. pylori and that you're not taking the NSAIDs. And I would just take the short course of the medication and, and that's it. Your ulcer's gone. And then you can start with a healed gut. And that's really going to give you, um, you know, a lot of relief and it'll optimize your digestion. Wow, this is great. You are so knowledgeable. Uh, I did this was the last question, but you can do international consults, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. That's great. Well, thank you so much. I really, I really enjoyed the presentation. I'm gonna watch it again. And thank you for taking the time to answer as many questions as possible. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, AJ. It's always a pleasure to come on here and be with you and this wonderful community that you've created and that, you know, you're doing so much for on an everyday basis, whether it's like cooking demos or having great speakers. So I thank you a lot. And uh, yeah, anytime that, um, that we can co collaborate, I'm happy to be here. Well, absolutely. You're one of my favorites. And guys, if you have GI problems, book a consult. Even if insurance doesn't pay, trust me, it's worth it. Telemedicine is amazing. She can do everything except for the digital disinfection, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. And thanks all of you really for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. I really appreciate you being here, whether you're watching live or a, a replay. And please do come back tomorrow when we have a spectacular guest, a doctor doing a Q&A, none other than Dr. Doug Lyle. Take care, Dr. Mendez. The best to you. <laughs>